Uh, thank you, everyone, for showing up for uh, the last higher education panel of the day. Uh, this is price versus cost versus value, a discussion about affordability and um, other issues related to that in higher education. Uh, we've got a, a very distinguished panel here to discuss this issue. Um, thank you all for showing up. And I'll, I'll go down, uh, down the line and introduce introduce these guys. Uh, first, to my immediate left, uh, Congresswoman Ed Eddie Bernice Johnson from Dallas. We have the president of the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, Guy Bailey. Uh, fresh off of a uh, University of Houston football victory, uh, <laughs> Chancellor and pr University President, Renu Couture. Uh, Chancellor of San Jacinto College, Brenda Hellyer. And President of the University of Texas at Austin, uh, Gregory Finvez. Thank you all for uh, appearing. Um, I'm going to start by just uh, kind of setting the table for this debate with a few kind of comments we've heard recently from uh, state leaders uh, about higher education. Um, when, when our governor, Greg Abbott, was running for office, uh, one of the things, one of the ideas that he promoted was a goal to have uh, five of the top 10 uh, public universities in the country is rated by US News um, to be from Texas. Um, and obviously, that would require a, a fairly substantial investment. Currently, we do not have any, um, although we have some that uh, some very highly rated, uh, including uh, ones represented on this stage. Um, again, another quote uh, from uh, another comment from I believe last week or earlier this month by our Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, where he released a statement prior to a UT System Board of Regents meeting, where he. Um, uh, uh, suggested to the uh, university system that it keep its tuition uh, as it is right now and, and really think, think twice before uh, any tuition increases are, uh, are, are made. Um, at that meeting, a day later, uh, David Daniel, a vice chancellor, discussed how um, tuition hasn't kept up with uh, inflation in recent years and that, how that has created a, a, a real difficulty for UT system schools in, in hiring especially top staff. Uh, you know, we're in a, a stronger job market than we were a few years ago. And uh, in order to get the best people, he said, uh, you know, we need to make sure that we're paying them well and, and have the money to attract them. Um, so, uh, President Finviz, I wanted to start with you. Uh, those three different kind of goals, uh, requests from leaders in this state, I think maybe might show kind of how hard all of your jobs are in terms of meeting the different disparate goals. And I'm curious, as you kind of begin the process of figuring out how much, how much UT Austin students are going to pay next, when they show up for school next year, how do you kind of balance those, those sometimes conflicting desires? Well, I certainly uh, agree with, uh, with Governor, Governor Abbott. Uh, Texas, as the second largest state, uh, has, I, I think, has an opportunity uh, with the great universities in this state uh, to increase their quality. Um, this is not a matter of prestige. This is a measure, measure of quality that will attract people to Texas, uh, future residents that will keep uh, great students in Texas uh, because of the quality of the, of the universities here. So I, I'm very supportive of, of Governor Abbott's goals. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick uh, talked about the tuition increases, and we, we think not only twice about tuition, uh, we think about it three times and four times every day uh, because we do recognize that the cost of higher education is a very important issue for parents and, and for the students that are coming, coming to the university. Uh, we think we provide, a, at the University of Texas at Austin, a very, very high-value proposition. What the value of, of a degree to a UT graduate is, uh, I think, is competitive with any major university in the country. At a, currently, at a tuition that's one of the lowest among public flagship universities. And we are always thinking about how do we provide the most value and the highest quality at the lowest cost. But we recognize costs increase. That's inexorable. Uh, it's an economic fact. 
and uh, to attract the best faculty, to uh, retain our staff in a, in a uh, rapidly growing economy. That's a benefit to Texas, but it makes talent uh, even more competitive. Uh, that we need to have the adequate resources to be able to, to continue to, to deliver that quality education. Chancellor Couture, you have, uh, you know, one of the hallmarks of your time leading the University of Houston has been an effort to really elevate it in terms of the standing its national perception as a national university. Um, I mean, how, how difficult is that to do while, while continuing to remain an affordable university to attend? So, so the, first of all, I mean, the questions you had raised earlier kind of everything dovetails into it. A um, lot of compliments, a lot of kudos to our governor and lieutenant governor. I think their eyes are focused on the exactly right thing. I look at higher education uh, as a pyramid. You need to have a base, meaning you need to have education accessible and uh, successful for as many people as possible, but at the same time, you need to have that absolute excellence that is best in the world because we do not want to have, we do not want to settle with mediocrity. Now coming back to the University of Houston. Houston is the fourth largest city in the United States. Texas is like anywhere I travel, people say, where are you from? And if I say I'm from Texas, there is a special kind of respect you get. I like that. But the thing is, we got to stay at that competitive edge. So given that, if the goal is for us to stay competitive and our mission is to provide access, then you have to find a way to resolve conflict between those, those two goals. And that's what we have done. We have proven it over and over again, including last week when we received the, the, our entry into the Phi Beta Kappa Honor Society. The diversity and excellence are not mutually exclusive. They are one and the same. And if you make that goal as a non-negotiable goal, you will find a way because not one way. There are nine different ways. You just have to be innovative. You have to be committed. You have to be ready to work hard. And you have to do things that you haven't done before. I don't know if you can achieve something that you have never achieved before in life without doing something that you have never done before in life. So that's the motto that we've taken. And I'm very proud of what my faculty staff have been able to do at the University of Houston. I've I've done some reporting recently in South Dallas, speaking to kids who had attended, uh, you know, some low-income schools where, you know, they would be first-generation college students, uh, and uh, you know, not necessarily with the family income where they could, uh, without some help, uh, attend college. And I was really interested when when I was speaking with them because. Uh, you know, trying to get an idea of how they were trying to decide where they wanted to go to school. And the, the prestige, even the, um, the types of programs that schools had were not necessarily the number one thing they were mentioning. They were saying, you know, I want to go to the school, I'm, or I'm going to go to the school that gives me the most money, that, that really helps me get there. Congresswoman, what do you see when, when you speak with your constituents or in, about affordability? I mean. How difficult is it for, for some, some people to pay for college these days? You know, I have constituents in all income levels, with quite a few in the low income levels. It's very difficult for students to even program higher education when they know they're going to have a student loan that's going to last them the rest of their lives. And so it is a dilemma, but it should not be an obstacle. It should not be a situation where they have to choose not to go. Because education is really an investment, and every student needs that investment for their future. So it's, uh, it's incumbent upon us as lawmakers, as policymakers, to be sure that students have access to quality education. There are many very poor students that rise to the best universities and do well. So poverty doesn't necessarily mean that they're dumb. It really means that they might need some opportunity, and that opportunity has to come in several different ways. Um, there has to be a, an opportunity for them to attend schools of quality, but also where they can afford it. So that's why we have the Pell Grants that I think we can uh, hopefully renew. I can't promise you anything about what's going to happen in Congress anytime soon. Um, <laughs> But the necessity of it is there. It, it, the necessity of well-educated workforce and well-educated 
performance within our society at all levels is demanded. Uh, all you got to do is just travel around the state and go out of the country and you can see that we are in a very challenging time for educating our population. Texas is especially because we're getting a lot of new population. Most of that population is poor. But it does not mean that they don't need the skills to have a very productive life. And so we are in a dilemma on whether or not we're going to make it possible for them to go without selling them with bills uh, from student loans the rest of their lives. You know, there are almost two million uh, people in this um, uh, uh, state that owe student loans. And it's over tr several trillion dollars of student loans out there. That's a lot of money. And that means that if a student goes to medical school or to law school when they finish their basic uh, degree, they're talking about $100,000 to pay. They'll never be able to afford a home or even a family for that matter. Uh, so we've got to balance this somehow because the opportunity must be there. Educating our young people is an investment and it's an investment for all of us, for our future for our status in, in the country, for the state. Uh, we've got to make sure that it's available and it's gonna be a challenge for us to figure out how we're gonna do it, but we must do it. Dr. Bailey, um, I wanna get a kind of an idea of how should we be assessing how affordable a school is? I mean, you, we've talked previously about how, you know, the, the tuition sticker price might not be what most students of certain schools are paying. But that's true. I think there are two considerations that are important here. First of all, going to college is important, but graduating is more important. That's the key thing. You, if you graduate, yeah. even if you take out a loan, you, you have a chance to take it out. And uh, it's not an accident, I don't think, that the universities with the lowest tuition rates had the lowest graduation rates because students didn't have the services. If you have, as our two legacy institutions had... Uh, you know, one advisor for every seven, 800 students. It's very hard with those kinds of services to get through. So <clears throat> you have to set your tuition in a way that provides adequate support services. And you need to be sure you can offer classes in a timely manner. So students' graduation is a key thing there. So when you look at affordability, it's not just starting, it's graduating. But, but the other thing, uh, the vast majority of poor students have much of their education paid for. In our freshman class, 90% uh, of the students who are Pell eligible don't pay any tuition or fees. Uh, when you get a, a, above that, it's the students in the, in the cut above that for whom the affordability becomes an issue. But uh, uh, for the poorest students, almost all of them can afford, but the combination of Pell grants, which are very good, and, and Texas grants, those two things plus tuition set-asides that are required uh, by state law. Those, those things make it possible for students to go and pay very little tuition. So the sticker price is very different from what you actually charge in tuition. Chancellor Hellyer, I uh, was on the phone with the uh, uh, Commissioner of Higher Education recently and uh, talking about this issue, among other things, and he, he mentioned, you know, that the... Um, uh, the public universities in, in this state do a pretty good job of you know, keeping co costs at average or below average, but that in Texas, the community college, the cost to attend community colleges is one of the lowest in the country. What is it that the community colleges are doing so well? How, how, can, they, how can they stand out? Well, community colleges are funded much differently than the universities. And so, first of all, you have to understand that. How we were set up in Texas is um, we have a taxing district. And for me, at San Jacinto College, my tax, taxing district is made up of all the citizens within six school districts. And so I receive a maintenance tax and then also a debt service tax. The debt service is how, how we build buildings. And um, that's about 37% of my budget is my maintenance tax. Um, and then we also get state appropriations based on our enrollment and some performance funding. And then we have tuition and fee um, revenues. And so how we're set up is, is funded much, much differently. But it is a real focus that we were created for this taxing community and to serve them. And so my tuition rates are $47 a semester credit hour for people within my taxing district and $89 if you're not in my taxing district. 
And so it's a real balance of how you maintain that, but there's different revenue sources with that. Um, one thing I'd like to stress that you, you mentioned also is about the first generation to college. 77% of my students are first generation to college. Um, our enrollment is um, 29,767 students as of yesterday. And, um, and so you think 77% of those students are first generation to college, and so how do you put in the services that are needed to support them? And it's a real juggle when you've got those kind of revenue sources, <coughs> reductions from the state, um, and then trying to balance that property tax and that tuition and fee. But it's, it's a different model, um, and there's not a lot of fluff um, in our systems. Well, you mentioned the model, um, and President Finviz, I'll ask you this. Um, how is the model for how we're funding higher education these days? I mean, we, we, a lot of times when we hear lawmakers or uh, people in the general public uh, uh, complain to universities that uh, tuition is going up too much, uh, the, the reply we hear is that, well, the state is not funding on a per student basis nearly as much as it used to. Is, that, is there, is there a, an issue here in terms of uh, are colleges being forced to raise tuition because of that? Uh, well, let me give you some numbers for the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, in today's dollars, uh, the state appropriation per student at UT Austin in 1993, more than 20 years ago, was about $9,400 per student. 20 years ago. Uh, in today's dollars, uh, the state appropriation is about 7,900. So uh, just factually, the uh, state funding has declined in real dollars over that 20-year period in Texas. That's true in California, where I'm from. I think that's probably true in almost every other uh, uh, major state. And what you've seen in Texas is what you've seen in, any, uh, in every other state is to uh, provide the funding for education, the cost has been transferred from the taxpayer in general uh, uh, through general revenue appropriation to the students and their families. So that's a, that is a national trend uh, that has happened here and across the nation. And so uh, at UT, I think it's true at most other uh, public flagship universities, uh, more than 50% of our revenue now is tuition. And so the, the, the days that uh, many of our alumni remember of uh, it costing less than $1,000 a year, uh, maybe just a couple hundred dollars a year in tuition or fees, uh, those are, are long gone at UT Austin and at a, every other major university. So that model has changed over time. May well, I jump in on the, on the funding? So for community colleges, we're funded on contact hours and then a performance funding. But if you look at our full-time student equivalent funding, so what just um, came out of the session was $1,850 per full-time student equivalent. In 2002 and three, that was $2,500 a student. And there were some real dips. Um, probably six years ago, that was actually about 1,600, so it's come up a little bit. But it's real dollars, just what you said, declines. And how do you manage that? Um, and so it does put the burden back on to either a local taxpayer in my situation or onto students. I just want to add something here too because um, all institutions have been incredibly innovative at the institutional level. But this is not something where institutions operate in local context or in state context because you are recruiting faculty, you're recruiting staff at, from the national pool. So it's easy to say, well, you can do it this. You can tell them to teach twice as much. You can say they will not have tenure. The thing is you're not going to get anybody. So there are three levels of innovation that is taking place about balancing the cost and excellence. One is at the institutional level, and I see across the board how incredibly hard institutions are trying. I'm not just talking about my system. I just see across the board. But then they, there's a limitation what they can do. And then there are innovations that at state level can happen that can help the institutions. And Texas has been actually pretty good. One good example is what, what's happening uh, here with, with Guy Bailey's thing, which is you take two institutions, merge them together, and say you can get two and two and get 22 out of it instead of four, right? But then there is a certain innovation that has to take place at the industry level, just like it happened with the print media. Everybody was trying to do something, and then immediately something came 
and completely changed it because the whole industry changed. That will happen in our industry in 10 years. But it's not going to happen because one institution will change. But I can see on the horizon a lot of different things that are happening that are putting some cracks. So it's not that we are not at the end of innovation. I'm actually quite excited. Uh, I'm, I'm scared as chancellor for myself because you have to deal with it. But I'm very excited for my grandson, you know, who's young, who will have all these different opportunities that I can't even imagine today. Well, we, we talked about the um, per-student funding and, and how in real dollars that has declined. Um, it, am I wrong to think that one of the reasons for that is because a lot more people are going to college these days? And, you know, back, you know, 50 years ago, the, the proportion of the population that was going to UT was so much smaller that the taxpayer dollars, it was a less of a burden on the, taxpayer do, on the taxpayers to help pay for that. Um, now, you know, the state's goal is to send 60% or to have 60% of people between the ages of 24 and 35 to have some kind of a degree or certificate. Um, in a state where, you know, raising taxes is not necessarily a popular idea, is it, is it even possible to, to continue that old model? I'll, I'll ask you that, Dr. Bailey. It, it'll be tough. And it's, it's interesting, the growth in the population is particularly of interest to us because we're one of the fastest growing areas of the state. And as we look in the future, the uh, question, do we, how do we support, have the faculty, the facilities, and the programs that our students need? And so the, the current funding model is probably not going to provide that. Uh, we can do some things through innovation. There's some economy of scale we can create in some ways. But ultimately, part of that mix has to be additional revenue, too. You can't do it without it. And again, our students deserve the same programs that they could get if they lived in Houston. And so many of them would have to go to Houston or to San Antonio for, for many programs that would lead to the highest paying jobs. And part of our goal is to get those to students. That to be, we have to fund those some way. So, um, you know, let me answer that, a question, that uh, a little bit differently. Um, it depends on what you're, you're measuring. But one way to, to look at higher education funding is what percentage of the, the state domestic product or the personal income is going to higher education? Because as the population increases, that domestic product or that total uh, personal income uh, increases. And uh, what you see in Texas and most states is the percentage of total income going to higher education is declining. And so I don't think that's the re I don't think the increased enrollment, which is really a result of increased population and, and more college attainment, is, the, is really what's driving it. It's that states have, have a tough problem. Uh, the demands on the tax dollar are public education, health care, uh, transportation, uh, public safety. And uh, when the legislature is looking at all of those in addition to higher education, uh, I think less funding is going to higher education to address those other priorities in society. We're usually the largest discretionary part of the state budget. So, yeah. Well, really, notwithstanding that, it's needed. And we need to step up to the plate. Now, I know I'm a native Texan, and I know how Texans feel about increasing taxes. So I'm not saying that everything should be a, a tax increase, but I think we need to think beyond that and determine that the opportunities must be there for young people. It is much less expensive to educate than it is to incarcerate. And you're really talking about a choice between, in a sense, because if they're not educated, they don't have a skill, we still have to take care of them. That's when you get more money spent in Medicaid or whatever programs you have. The only way you can diminish those programs is to give the young people some type of workforce skill so they can take care of themselves. So it's, it's looking at uh, spending on higher education, not as spending, but as investing. Investment. So, uh, Looking at this in a market-based way, um, the, the cost of attending college in the last few decades has gone up quite significantly. But I don't think any of you guys have a shortage of applicants trying to get into school. I mean, is there an argument to be made that, that college is still very much worth the cost and we sh we're, we're kind of overreacting to the, the, the trends in tuition? Chancellor? Well, um, you know, 
it would be absolutely wonderful if we treated education or a college degree as a common good. It's good for the society, and therefore society together should invest in it. That's the model we had. Now we think every college degree is individual benefit, and therefore individuals should invest in it, which is a shift in paradigm. But in terms of demand, yes, but I think Congresswoman said before, the finance or the cost is important, but this is not everything. Because I can tell you that we have, um, you know, of course, the students from the very poorest backgrounds that we don't even charge any tuition and fee, right? So they are going free of tuition. If you look at their retention rate or their graduation rate, it's not necessarily higher than those ones who are working and who are paying costs. So there are five, seven, nine maybe different things that we have to do together. So on the cost, before I leave this thing, I generally, I mean, last time I think I remember this forum only, I said, if you look at it, you go Google it, and you see what is the average cost of wedding in this country that is higher than the average cost of education, a college degree from a public institution. So you can see the, 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 whether we should complain about it. But at the same time, I do know that there are many of my students who cannot really afford even that. And therefore, we have to find a way. But if that is the goal, and that has to be a goal because I always look at America or our institution, whatever, in the global context. You cannot compete in this global world if you're not paying attention to education and your workforce. So if that becomes something we have to do, then we'll have to find those other nine ways of helping students. Some that will cost money, some that won't cost money, some that will require innovation. We just have to do it. we got to educate to appreciate the value of education. Because if we don't hold it in a high enough value, we're not willing to pay for it. And when we know how valuable it is, and it becomes important to all of us, we'll find a way to pay for it. These are really four different markets, too. And if you look at uh, what we could actually charge, you know, we, our students simply can't afford and so we, we, we're very cognizant of that. President Fenvis could you know, probably no limit on, on uh, well, if this were an open market. Uh, so they're, they're really very different markets. And you, and you have to take into account who your students are and what's feasible for, for them and their families. Um, well, uh, we can't uh, charge whatever we want. I know that. But, uh, thank you for the support on that. Um, but we do pay a lot of attention to affordability. And uh, I actually disagree with your premise that uh, the tuition is skyrocketing. We track this very carefully, um, especially by family income, adjusted gross income of families of our students. And in the, the students who are coming from families uh, earning less than $60,000 a year, the net tuition those students are paying after financial aid over 20 years has declined 15%. They're paying 15% less today than they were in 2003. And even in the middle income range, uh, let's call it 80 to 120,000, the net tuition over 20 years has been absolutely flat over that time period. So it has not, the real costs have not been skyrocketing because we pay attention to it. So who is having the hardest time paying for school these days. I mean, we, I, we heard in a, a previous session with the uh, private school presidents that um, really feeling like it was actually the middle class, that a lot of the, these students at places like Rice are, are, are sometimes not even paying any tuition at all. Um, what's, what's the experience with, with, at your schools? Uh, who, who's struggling the most? I think you're right. It's the, it's the students who um, are I would say lower middle class, you know, are really struggling, and they're, they're working, you know, and sometimes they're, they're having two jobs. So if we create more opportunities for them to stay on campus, it engages them. So there are ways to, 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 to tackle with that. And um, also, you know, being in Houston is a, is a virtue in that sense that we can have students, you know, in internships, and uh, we, we can find internships that, that also are, are, are in some way valuable uh, in terms financially. But also, we have started focus a very big deal on not just the, the uh, trying to get students in and giving scholarships, but also completion of scholarships, because we realized that by the time it's the fourth year, they really struggle. So we're just basically looking to see what is it that's causing you 
uh, trouble. So when I go to freshman class and every fall semester when our semester begins, I attend every single freshman class to welcome them myself and to tell them that uh, you're here and we will do everything possible for you to graduate. But if you are having trouble, you send me an email and I give them my email address. And I do get lots of emails on whatever issues. But sometimes I get emails that tell you about where psychologically they are. One time I got emails saying, you said you can solve my problem in three days. Can you please ask my girlfriend to come back? <laughs> you know, I can't solve that problem, but nonetheless, the point is at that age, it could be anything. And the most important component of all of this is if they feel that they could connect with somebody on campus, whether it's faculty or whether it's staff, somebody cared. So that is easy thing to do. It's not about cost. That is something about our commitment, about, about our culture. For us at San Jacinto College, it's a little different. And, um, and for the community colleges around Texas, I believe it's different. We're open access. We accept 100% of who apply. Um, they may not be college ready, and we put them into developmental education classes to get them college ready. And um, about 75% of my students are part-time. They're working. Um, and it's going to take them longer than the, the average two years for an associate degree. And so they're, they're, they're juggling those kinds of things. But then again, when you add that first generation to college, not understanding the process, being afraid of the, financial, the federal financial aid process, it takes that extra support systems in, in place to help them. But um, it's a much different culture than what you, you hear from my colleagues up here. And those are the kinds of the students that we're, we're serving every day, and we need to continue to make sure we don't forget that community college pipeline. And, and for us, I consider us a, a school of choice. Um, we're the opportunity those kids have, those people coming back, to be able to see what the next opportunity is. If they can, when they transfer to a four-year university, we're the biggest feeder to University of Houston Clear Lake. Our second largest feeder is University of Houston, Maine. But they're successful, but they need that support and that infrastructure, and that takes, um, again, a lot more pressure from our college to make sure we're providing that. But it also means that maybe they're not going to get through as quickly either, and we've got to be able to address that with them. Uh, President Finvis, one of the worst ways to spend money on college is to start it and not finish it. Um, or do what I did and not take four years and take some extra time. Um, How much you, time did you take? I took five. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. It's all right. I think it's worse. <laughs> right. you don't, if you take six years, I'm fine. Okay. Okay. Very good. Um, UT has made a lot of news, gotten a lot of attention for the effort it's, it has taken, especially for the, uh, the um, students with fewer financial resources and trying to get them to graduate in four years. Uh, how, how can you do that and, and why is that important? Uh, well, I think it's very important. I think college was designed to be four years. Uh, there is a, um, there's a huge opportunity cost when students stay in, in, in school. Uh, they're not working. They're not starting to... Uh, to get the benefit of their education. Um, and when I came to Texas seven years ago, I was absolutely shocked by the low graduation rates here. I had never seen it uh, at, at a public university uh, so, so low. And that wasn't just UT Austin. I think that was statewide. UT Austin then and now has the highest four-year graduation rate of any public university in Texas. And that is low compared to public, uh, public universities across the uh, so when my predecessor, Bill Powers, made it a priority and the chancellor made it a priority, uh, I was very glad to see that. And we should be designing our curricula, uh, making sure that, uh, that to, to complete in four years, making sure courses are available, just like President Bailey talked about. Uh, the support services are there for students uh, uh, to, to get the help that they need to be able to graduate on time. The best way to control the cost of higher education is to keep a four-year degree from becoming a five-year degree or a six-year degree. And what I found, especially at UT, is there was a lot of just campus culture uh, that five years is good. But yeah, you're um, leaving the You're party gonna be working the rest of your life. Austin's a nice place to live. Uh, let's try out a couple majors. Uh, what's the rush? <laughs> and uh, my point is, and I know students don't like hearing it, uh, your tuition that you're paying is a fraction of the cost of providing your education. Somebody else is paying the rest of it, maybe the taxpayer, maybe the endowment. 
And there's a limit to how much others should pay for your education. And we think uh, that you should get out in four years. It's good for you economically. It's good for the university. And I think it's better for society. President Bailey, oh, go ahead. I just want to comment a little bit on who, who the cost of college education is hardest. It really is that middle-income family. I'm not an educator, and I'm too old to be formally educated hardly much anymore. But I do hear the complaints. As an elected official, it is daily. A family of four or five people, three kids and, and two working parents, get along just fine and can pay all of their bills. But when, a co when this one of them goes to college, they don't have all that extra money to pay into the, into the uh, tuition. And many of them have not had an opportunity to save it into an education fund. But there are fewer opportunities for people who can't pay all of their bills every month. They don't necessarily save a lot, but they're doing okay until they have to pay that tuition. That is the population that's having the hardest time coming up with that tuition money. They don't qualify as low income. They don't qualify to get a lot of the assistance or scholarships or whatever. Um, I know students can qualify for scholarships, but I mean, the financial aid that's available for low income is not available to that middle, that, that population between the rich and the poor. President Bailey, you um, at RTG, R, UTRGV, um, I understand, have, have kind of structured tuition to actually provide an incentive for students to graduate. That's right. The, the, we tried to use in our tuition to help students graduate in four years or hopefully less. Uh, many of our students, four down here, uh, I, I'd be surprised if all of them didn't come to us with some college credit already. And so <clears throat> we know that they have that college credit. If we can get them to take at least 15 hours and maybe 18 hours, they can graduate faster. And so we capped our tuition at 12 hours. Anything above 12 hours is free. If you take 18 hours, you can graduate a semester early. It didn't cost you a thing. So what we're trying to do is really incentivize people to graduate quickly because, uh, as President Fenvis said, the best way to keep the cost of education down is to graduate in a timely manner. And so tuition was, was the primary mechanism, the primary lever we had to incentivize students to graduate in a timely way. So let me address this thing in one way because I have four institutions um, in my system. So for flagship, what the issue is, four years, and I'll address that in a second. But I have three other institutions where we, system level, we decided we will offer this program called, you know, four-year degree. Keeping your tuition fixed cost, so that was a very good financial incentive, as well as guaranteed classes and every support possible. On the flagship campus, this year's freshman class has 60% of the freshman class is in that program, UHN4. So they are prepared, they can do it, they are ready. In my other three, not even 10% of these students are prepared to do that. So one has to realize that there are, there are people for whom, for family reasons, for other reasons, four-year may not be a possibility for, because they may have to work, and they're not just for tuition. They may have to help the family. You know? So we have to keep those options open. But I, for UHN4 that we started program, last year we started, 48% of the students took it. This year, the retention was higher. Their grade point average was higher. Their number of credits completed was higher. They have fixed tuition that is there. They will go study abroad. I mean, we will graduate all of them in four years, or at least a majority of them. But at the same time, I just want to make sure that point gets across because all institutions are not same. And we need to make sure that we're keeping doors open to those who we can help to graduate at least in six years rather than making a 10-year program. Well, and is that not the ultimate goal, or should that not be the ultimate goal, to have schools like UT and University of Houston that are you know, maybe a little bit more expensive, but uh, you know, provide that elite public school atmosphere? And, and are, you know, if, if every school is, is open access and uh, uh, you know, doesn't quite necessarily you know, make the investment in, in research or other things that cost money, would we risk having students go you know, to private schools or schools out of state instead? 
I mean, how much how much of this should be a structured system where where maybe people paying are paying less at certain schools or and maybe even transferring into the bigger schools or or uh, just being okay with you know UT being more expensive than Austin Community College or something like that. You you just you raised an interesting point. One of the <coughs> problems I think we have in the state is that we are a huge exporter of students. If you look at University of Arkansas, more than half of their freshman class, I'm sure the same thing is true at, at Oklahoma. It is. I was president at University of Alabama, full-time recruiting offices in Dallas and Houston. And uh, remember, both of those cities have larger populations than the state of Alabama. So it, once students go away to school, they often stay. Well, that's the problem we have in the Valley. You go to San Antonio or to Houston school, and you often don't come back. So. That, that is a, a serious issue, and one of the reasons I think Governor Abbott said we needed more universities in, in that top ten is, is to keep our best students in state. Congresswoman, what do we need from the federal government to, to help solve this issue? We need uh, less than 40 people that are against everything. But we still do need to make sure that Pell Grants are available. Uh, right now, we're working on trying to get uh, the opportunity for students to refinance their loans at a lower interest rate uh, so that it won't take them a lifetime to pay it all back. Uh, basically, uh, it is known that education is left to the states, but compensatory grants, research, uh, continues to be a major interest of the federal government. And I hope we can step up to the plate because it does make, I visited colleges all over the world. And I can tell you that we can use all of the investment we can get, whether it's money or people, because we are a growing population, we are a diverse population, and we need to keep up with the rest of the world. Let me just add a editorial thing. Most of you remember when the Super Collider was defunded 20-some years ago. Well, I visited the Super Collider in CERN. I've been there several times, but I went there in September. And there are students from all over the world there, many from from the University of Texas, University of Texas at Dallas, University of Texas at Arlington, uh, Rice, and professors. And what I'm so chagrined about is that environment is not here in Texas that stimulates the interest of students and excites them about being educated and excites them about being researchers. It's unfortunate that we don't have that level of research very, very commonly seen around our state. We have NASA, we have uh, research in the universities. I also went where the uh, um, fusion research from the University of Texas is playing a major role in the building of the future energy uh, contraption, I call it, is huge, and it's going to be a long time before it's going to provide that energy, but it's under construction in France. And it's so exciting to see that people from the University of Texas at Austin and El Paso and Rice and all are all over there. I want them to be over here so our students can see them, be a part of it, so that we can stimulate their interest and make sure that when they are educated, where they are, they can stay there. Good. Um, so I'll be opening it up for questions here in a second. So if you'd like to ask a question, just come to one of the microphones. Um, while, while people are walking up, I'll ask you, Chancellor Hellyer, uh, the Obama administration uh, advocating for free community college, is that a realistic possibility at all for Texas? If we didn't have those 40 people that are against everything, we'd probably get it. However, <laughs> 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 let me say that um, if I had my way, and of course I won't, I think the first four years of college ought to be free because we're talking about college <laughs> today is like a high school education was 30 years or so ago. It is important that students have access and we know it's going to be costly and I, I applaud all of the people up here for what they're doing to make it possible and I'm very proud of many of our universities, but it has to be more accessible and somehow we've got to make it so. Because the future depends on innovation. And we cannot get it 
unless students are stimulated and have the opportunity to get the education girding they need to make sure that we get the best that we can get from their minds. We've got to invest to do that. I'll jump in on that. On the White House option for the college promise, the free community college, I've been in DC at some of the White House meetings around it. Um, there's a lot of excitement there, but there's a lot of work that has to be done. And the real issue is um, the details of how you're going to finance this and fund it. And right now, there is supposed to be a matching from the state. And, um, and the question becomes, will Texas stand up and do that or not? And in understanding that, that burden can't be put back on the community colleges. And so there's a lot of funding that community colleges do. For example, many community colleges do substantial um, discounts for dual credit early college high school students that are still in high school taking college courses. Could that be used as part of our matching? I think we have to get innovative and we have to look at the model, but we've got to go in here and really understand the financial plan because you can't have that put burden put back onto the institution to figure out how to fund it. Um, but I'm hopeful. I, I still want to participate in the conversations, but there's a lot of details that have to be worked out around it. We've got about uh, a little bit under 15 minutes left, so um, we'll try to get uh, quick answers to the questions, um, and hopefully we'll get to as many as you as possible. And we'll start over here and then go that way. Well, I think one of the things I think is there's a, been a big point that's been missed here. Uh, I'm a former, I'm a recovering uh, high-tech guy. I've been through two successful startups. Uh, we have way, way too many four-year graduates who are graduating and can't get jobs. Uh, the value is what it is, is what they can do. It, I regularly get briefings from Texas Workforce Solutions where they'll tell you, here are the top 10 jobs. Oh, by the way, seven of them didn't exist five years ago. Um, today, kids can get really good high-paying jobs with a two-year certificate. They come get a four-year degree, particularly in liberal arts, and they come out with huge student debt and they can't get jobs. So the problem is the four-year, in my opinion, the four-year degree programs are battleships and they're just moving way too slowly for where the economy is moving. Um, just wanted to get some comments about that. I can say I agree with you. Yeah. We have a lot of bachelor's degree level courses that probably shouldn't be offered as bachelor's degrees anymore. In my area, I'm in, in the heart of petrochem expansion in, in Houston. And so right now there's $35 billion worth of expansion being planned in my district for the petrochemical industry. We have not served that industry well over the last um, eight to 10 years. And that has again been a change in the economy. The fracking has changed that. And as you talk with industry, um, their perception of where they were eight years, would have been eight years ago versus now has changed. And so there's been a change um, from working with industry in making sure we're meeting that workforce need. We just participated in a study with them. They need 11,000 more workers in the petrochemical industry, and those are two-year certificates or associate degrees, but also preparing them so that they could move into management level and, and take bachelors. And so. For us um, at the community college, and at least my college, it is being responsive to that workforce need. And that, you know, you hit it very clearly that that is a, a big area for us that we're working on. But as um, uh, Chancellor Couture mentioned also, it's innovation. It's changing what we're doing. And I think each one of our institutions are doing that to try to meet that workforce need. I'll just take a little, little different tact on that. There are many jobs there for whom the industry cannot find workers, and then there are many people there who just cannot find jobs. Yeah. How, it is very clear that people will change uh, at least seven jobs and four careers in their lifetime, and the thing that will carry with them is not necessarily the technical part of it. What will carry with them is the basic foundation of what makes you an analytical person, an educated person, worthy of you know, capable of build, building teams. So I will defend that foundation of liberal arts till the end. So well, the, I think the, that's important. The big challenge there is if they walk out with 80 or or $50,000 in debt, I've, I've got a daughter-in-law with a Spanish history and studio art degree. And uh, she had to go back to get a master's degree and spent $90,000 in student loan debt and still can't. Um, the challenge is, and I've, I've talked with a lot of UT students, um, they walk out, they're scared 
because they're walking out with a huge student loan debt. And yes, you're correct, those skills will carry forth. The problem is they need to be able to come out and be immediately marketable. Thank you. We'll, we'll go over here now. Hi, um, my name is Chloe, and I am one of Ms. Johnson's lower middle class constituents from the 30th District of Dallas. Um, and I'm also a student at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, because of you know my position uh, as both a student and as both a member of like a lower socioeconomic status, um, tuition is a main concern to me. Um, and you know while I do appreciate many of the like initiatives that this university has taken on, um, I've also been speaking with a lot of state legislators on what their argument is against like raising tuition in terms of real dollars. Um, and their um, contributions to subsidizing tuition in terms of real dollars. And a lot of um, things that they've been citing is that a good portion of different like um, increases of expenditures for public universities are for marketing, specifically, um, I guess, I suppose the University of Houston and the University of Texas at Austin. Um, is there any way to possibly, in the next few years, um, strike a balance between what the state legislators' arguments are and what the university's arguments are? Um, well, we certainly are uh, talking with them all the time. I can tell you our marketing budget uh, is minuscule. <laughs> uh, that's, that's not a big, uh, a big cost driver. We look at all our administrative expenses as a percentage of our total budget or percentage of uh, the, what we call our education budget. We're, we're some of the lowest in the, in the state. So we do pay a lot of attention to uh, administrative efficiencies um, and still provide the, provide the quality service. Uh, but the, uh, the real cost driver is getting the best people here at the university. That's faculty. And that's very talented staff that, uh, that run the programs and, and help run the university. And those, those, that's the biggest cost driver that we, uh, that we face uh, that uh, affects our, our need for funding either from the state or uh, from students and their families through tuition. Uh, that, that is, he's exactly right in that the real, uh, almost all of our costs are in personnel and in, in people, especially faculty. So that's, uh, that is a big cost driver for all of us, I think. Our marketing budget is, again, very small. And let me tell you, I mean, in terms of administration, in our system, I don't even have a chancellor's office. Everybody who's a chancellor or vice chancellor also is a president or vice president of flagship university. We have completely gotten away from that layer that we just didn't feel was necessary. So uh, coming back to you in terms of where our biggest driver is, biggest driver is really trying to get more people who are meeting the regulatory burden that we are getting from every level. I mean, it's a ton and ton and ton of reports, and every year they just keep on increasing. That is a, if anybody we are hiring administration, that's what we are doing. But other than that, I agree, it's, it's the faculty, the best faculty that we can get nationally competing. for. All right, thank you so much. Hello, good afternoon. My name is Mark Roque. I'm currently a student at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. And my question is, the, uh, is what happened earlier this year. Just recently, the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board released a plan called 60 by 30, which was basically a plan that was 60% uh, of Generation Texas will have a post-secondary credential or degree by 2030. So therefore, as the representatives of your university, and uh, do you believe that this plan is, is achievable, and what are you guys doing right now to achieve this plan? Yeah, it's a plan achievable. It has to be really for the state. If you look at our economic future, it has to be. Remember that the 60 by 30 refers not just to bachelor's degrees, but also community college degrees and certificates as well. So it's the appropriate educational credential that students have. And, and I think what all of us are committed to is for helping students get the appropriate educational credential. And if you look at that plan in that respect, I, I think it is attainable. It, it's, a, it's a stretch, but, but I think it's attainable. And again, all of us, and especially my colleagues, uh, we, we have more opportunity to grow, and I think probably Houston Community colleges do as well. So, uh, yes, we're, uh, we're growing right now. Uh, my name is Richard Moore. 
Um, Dr. Couture, first I want to say I have a daughter who's a freshman at your institution at the main campus, and I want to commend you for your leadership. She is just, it, it is just amazing to watch her uh, this first year. She's living on campus and a liberal arts major, and I want to say uh, her liberal arts degree I think will serve her well, and I want to encourage you uh, in, in your leadership on that, that uh, getting that firm basis for an education um, is is a powerful thing. Um, but to the question about the cost of higher education, probably the number one way to uh, cut costs in, in, in higher education has to do with the relationship between the community colleges and the universities and developing these seamless pathways for students to move through without losing credits in a predictable way so they know going in that the credits they're earning at the community college will transfer and apply toward the degree at the university. Could y'all talk a little bit about the relationships that y'all have with your with the community colleges in your area? So for us, we actually take 50% uh, freshmen and 50% from community colleges. We love the partnership because those students who come to us from community colleges are more likely to succeed. I mean, they do succeed. We have a huge program going on right now. It's called the GPS or Guided Pathways to Success, where we have all of the community colleges in the in, in greater Houston area, all of the institutions. We are all participating together under some some uh, you know f uh, foundation funding. And what what we all want to do is just make sure that we can fix any leak that there might be in the pipeline. But I, I'm I'm very ho hopeful. But I'll let Brenda also talk about it. And Richard, it's good to see you. Um, we do have a great, this Guided Pathways um, under Dr. Couture that has really taken off and, and her uh, deputy chan vice chancellor. And it is working with all the Gulf Coast colleges to really try to build that partnership. Um, and I see a lot of potential around that. But with community colleges and four-year universities, there's more that can be done across the state. Um, you need leadership like Dr. Couture pushing that from a regional standpoint, but from a state standpoint, there are clear policy issues that need to be addressed. One of them is common course numbering around lower course, um, coursework, lower division coursework. Um, University of Houston Clear Lake uses the same common course numbering that all the 50 community colleges in the state use. That is not being done for all four-year universities. And it was a legislative agenda for community colleges last session that didn't move forward. Um, seamless articulation agreements right now, community colleges enter into those uh, articulation agreements with four-year universities and you negotiate. Um, <coughs> with you know, University of Houston, we have very, very clear pathways we're trying to work on. With Sam Houston, we have very, very clear articulations. But there is more that could be done that could be much more efficient for the state if you had those articulations statewide like the um, state of Florida has. I apologize to those who are waiting. We only, we only have time for one more question and we'll, we'll ask it on this side of the room. Hi, <clears throat> my name is Sean Sugamonian. I'm a student at ACC. I, uh, I come from California originally and, and one thing I know, it was a culture shock for me coming from a community college in California where they offer the governor's waiver which is a grant that pays for your first two years of college at the community college level or UC level. Um, and coming to Texas and being in my second year now of, of college and having to pay for, for, for my education, uh, it got me wondering, and, and I haven't really looked into this, and so I, I guess the question would be much, much better answered by someone in front of me rather than looking through the internet. Is there a shift at any, I mean, a visible shift at any point within legislature to start funding some of the lower level education for students in Texas? I think the option that's been presented by President Obama, where community college would be free for the first two years, um, that is a national initiative, but it is coming from each state needs to decide if they're going to participate in that. Sure. I, I I mean, I'm, I'm aware of the federal level. I'm, I'm, I'm asking specifically if, if, if right. any of you know about anything in the state level. I don't believe that there has been a huge amount of support in, in Texas at a state level. There are communities that are taking it on separately. For example, Dallas Community College and that Dallas area is really trying to look at an initiative that would address it there. 
but I'm not aware of it taking, getting a lot of state momentum. Yeah. See, our legislature has not taken on exactly what you're talking about, but there's something even, I, I think, even more important what they have done, and that is uh, asking all of us to offer college degree, the entire four-year degree, which would cost, total cost would be 10000 or less. We do offer many, many of those degrees uh, on all of our four campuses. So there is an option available of that time, which is really very useful. Right. Thank you for y'all's questions, and, and thank you to the panel. Let's give them a, some applause. Thank you.